No big deal in the cosmic picture. It's the perfect size for heating our little water planet so that life can percolate and grow. And on the winter solstice, we celebrate how the sun and earth dance so gracefully with each other through the ballroom of space-time, a majestic waltz that deserves our enthusiastic awes and hallelujahs. And the annual weakness of the sun is what is at the heart of our midwinter celebrations. Christmas, Hanukkah, the Celtic Druid Festival of the Stars, the Kachina night dances in the Hopi Pueblo. All of these holidays involve turning on a lot of lights and then eating and drinking too much. <laughs> Which all seems to happen because it's cold and dark outside and everyone has cabin fever. So the solution is to find a good religious excuse for winter binging. Speaking of the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, uh, the Buddha said, make yourself into a light. Save on electricity bills. <laughs> Our other big midwinter party is coming up. It's the New Year's Eve bash, which goes way back to the Greek festival of the wild women. And after the goddesses were deposed in Greece, that party became the festival of Dionysus, Later on in Rome, it turned into the Saturnalia, where people elected the Lord of Misrule. This Lord of Misrule was a holy fool who led the common people in making fun of the politicians and the priests, apparently as easy to do in Imperial Rome as it is today. <laughs> and this year in America, the Lord of Misrule would put on Supreme Court robes, and burn some stinkweed in the hallowed chambers and recite something like this. Oye, oye, oye ves mir. Lo and behold, the bush burneth, but unfortunately is not consumed. So the smell shall be upon the land for four years. The smell of the filthy lucre of the rich, the smell from too much burning of fossil fuels, the stench from building of crappy missile defense systems. Oh, the smell is horrible. So we pray, have pity on a supreme someone. We know not what the hell to do. And of course, if Jesus came back to the Bay Area today, he'd probably spend Christmas in the Tenderloin, hanging out with the winos and the prostitutes and the homeless like he did the first time. But in the end, as Mahatma Gandhi once said, God has no religion. John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the long winter night, it's all right. So whatever deity you honor, whatever traditions you follow, may it all be merry and bright and meaningful to you. And don't forget to pray for an end to all the unholy wars and raise goodwill for all species of life. And if you don't like the fruitcake your aunt sent you for Christmas, go out and make one of your own. <laughs> That's all right. No, no, please, please. I just... Um, Thought to add to that, I would read something that was in the Bay Guardian. Just a, a couple little things, uh, quotes from George Bush on the campaign trail. <laughs> By the way, in case you haven't noticed the, the cabinet appointments, um, there's one from 
the board of Chevron, one from the board of Alcoa, one from the board of uh, uh, General Motors, General Electric, sorry. Um, it's like your government has been acquired in a hostile takeover, you know, it's like a, of the corporations, by the corporations, for the corporations. What to do? This is, uh, these are some quotes from George Bush uh, on the campaign trail. On history, I think we agree the past is over. On tough times, I know how hard it is out there. It's hard to put food on your family. <laughs> on business, I understand small business growth. I was one. On education, we want our teachers to be trained so they can meet the obligations. We want to make sure there's not this kind of federal cufflink. <laughs> you know, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to understand, you know. But it will be good for satirists this next four years, so... Um, I do want to, uh, speaking of, of this change in administration, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this particular moment in history, and not just uh, this moment as it refers to a change in political uh, administration, but uh, to do a kind of New Year's reflection on the time the cultural era that we're living through, the historical era that we're living through. We don't do our practice in a vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum. And it's really useful to reflect on how our minds, our confusions, our fears, our desires are really part of a culture, part of a, uh, a moment in history, in human history and biological history as well. Um, it helps, I think, to both to uh, depersonalize what we experience and not to take it so personally, and also to raise our compassion to recognize that we are all in this together and that we are all, in some ways, of one mind. When we look at our minds in meditation, we, we are seeing our mind, our cultural mind. <laughs> And we happen to be living in a time of tremendous change, tremendous upheaval. Um, if we go back a thousand years, people a thousand years ago thought the earth was flat, and they thought it was stationary, it wasn't moving. It is moving, isn't it? <laughs> A thousand years ago, they, they didn't uh, know anything about uh, other solar systems, let alone other galaxies. They had no idea about uh, DNA, 
cells, evolution of species. They didn't know how to fly. They didn't know how to drive, for that matter. It was a completely different world. Um, I wonder if people in the year 3000 will look back at us as we now look back at people in the year 1000 and think, my God, they were ignorant. They just didn't know a thing. Or as the fire sign theater says, everything you know is wrong and likely will be disproven. But it was really, uh, it was really a long time ago. Oh, yes, in the year 1000, uh, a man from India discovered the zero, and the Chinese first invented gunpowder. And those two uh, discoveries have been infinitely improved upon since the year 1000. But we don't have to go back a thousand years, we can go back just a few hundred years to see how much incredible change has taken place and how different the world is. What a, what a unique situation that we are living in. A few hundred years is really not much in historical time and in biological time it's no, it's no time at all. You know, species don't change very fast. And as I said before, according to the evolutionary biologists, we're basically living with minds that were developed to be hunter-gatherers. Millions of years, uh, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. That, of course, explains our obsession with shopping. <laughs> but it also indicates, you know, uh, the great, perhaps, difficulty that we might have living in this particular modern world. We're in our time, we're experiencing a breakdown of very traditional ways of life. Before, just a couple hundred years ago, actually up until a hundred years ago, most people on the planet were peasants, were farmers, lived rurally. My father came from a, a small rural community in Poland. He, uh, he used to say to us kids, we live like kings here in America. Being a, being a middle-class merchant in this country, to him, was like living like only aristocracy ever used to live. We'd be sitting around a, our little Formica table, you know, in, in Nebraska and having a meal of meatloaf and side of jello and peas. And, and he really, he'd be in awe. He'd say, we live like kings here, you know. <laughs> My sister and I would roll our eyes. <laughs> But to him, it was definitely, you know, like being reborn in some heaven realm. And just uh, generationally, of course, you know, he, he and my mother lived through the fearful times, lean times of the Great Depression and then World War II. And so, of course, understandably, they were very concerned with security, physical security, financial security. And uh, my sister and I were born into 
relative affluence, you know, uh, with our security and the promises, the opportunities sort of expanding exponentially as, as we were born into the 40s and 50s and how, how much it affects who you are as to when you are born, you know, generationally, the time you are born. You are what you eat. You are when you're born. It's perhaps a better way of putting it. But the traditional roles, roles that had been uh, in place for thousands of years, literally. I mean, look at uh, family roles that have be, begun breaking down in our time. Uh, you know, in many uh, cultures before just a hundred or two hundred years ago, People didn't have a choice as to who they were going to marry. They were put together by matchmakers, or if you did have a choice, it was just a few people in you know your local town, and uh, you didn't have any. Also, didn't have much of a choice in what work you were going to do. You went into your father's business. You know, if your father was a farmer, you became a farmer. If your father was a craftsman or a merchant, that's what you became. And of course, women were wives and mothers. That's there was no other choice available. Um, my, my grandparents were put together by a matchmaker and lived together for 40 years. And I think grew to love each other. And now, of course, we have all this freedom. Uh, it's a whole new situation where we, at least we think we choose our mates and we have infinite choice and we choose our profession and we have infinite opportunities, infinite, infinite, uh, seemingly infinite choices as to what we might do with our lives. I mean, my father's work life was about survival, not about finding and expressing yourself <laughs> as mine, you know, was. I got to find my true self and express it in some <laughs> work situation, but it's a whole, it's a completely new condition in terms of our relationships and our family life, you know, now many, over half uh, marriages end in divorce. Very few people live in any kind of extended kinship family, which used to be the case for most people. They lived with their grandparents and their children and their mothers and fathers and it was all a big heap and now we live in single family houses and separated physically from each other from our extended family and even to some degree from any kind of communal ties we work in in single little spaces you know private spaces in cubicles it's a very different world that we're living in now than, than our ancestors lived in for thousands of years. We're living in a time of incredible mobility. It's hard to believe, but Henry Ford built the first car automobile in his first automobile in 1893, the assembly line automobile, 1893. There was only a few hundred miles of roads that were any that were passable at all in the country at that time. 
We've, we've literally transformed the landscape of a continent in a hundred years. The Wright brothers' first airplane flight in 1900. And now we just move all over the place, you know, where do you want to go today, tomorrow, what part of the world? Home is, you know, well, wherever your company sends you or wherever you decide you want to live or it's kind of a global village, but in the, in the process of creating a global village, we kind of lost our sense of village, our sense of home. But this is a very new condition. Sociologists used to talk about participation mystique, how people had this almost unconscious participation mystique with tribe, with nature, with cosmos, a sense of being part of all of these, uh, these processes and these collectives. And we've lost quite a bit of that in our time. We're experiencing an enormous change, an upheaval in our understanding of ourself, in our knowledge and belief systems. Till a few hundred years ago, most people, you know, were practicing rituals and beliefs very firmly that they had, that their ancestors had held for a couple thousand years. All of a sudden, you know, in our time, I celebrated Hanukkah, and then I come to do a little Buddhist meditation, and then, uh, you know, I probably do a little Sufi dancing before the year's out, or, you know, a little mixing and matching of mythologies and a melting pot of religious beliefs. Um, it hasn't been like that. It's almost like, uh, okay, choose your, choose your own. It's a grab bag. It's a strange situation. In 1900, Max Planck formulated the quantum theory. Now there's a revolution in how we understand ourselves. That uh, led to Einstein and his colleagues literally making matter disappear. Poof! Matter disappeared. It's energy. That's what it is. The rug was pulled out from under us. There's no solid ground anymore on which to stand. A real revolution in how we understand physical reality. Maybe there, there's some connection between that discovery and our attraction to Buddhism with its talk of emptiness and ephemeral, impermanent phenomena. That that was born in some way in, the, in those discoveries of physics that we've that have slowly trickled down into uh, the public consciousness. In the past few hundred years, our place in the universe shifted dramatically. 
it was only a few hundred years ago, you know, that people believed that, that this was it. You know, we were the center of the universe. The earth was the center of the universe. And that was about all there was, was the earth and, and the sun and the moon and the planets just to serve the earth and give us a little space here. And then Galileo got out his uh, instruments and figured that the sun was actually the center of the universe. And the church, of course, made him retract that. But they did forgive him. They finally officially forgave Galileo in 1979, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by which time we had discovered there were literally millions and millions of galaxies full of uncountable suns, some millions of times bigger than our sun. I mean, we're on the edge, now we find we're on the edge of this galaxy, you know, with a little medium-sized sun, and we're going around it, and it's... Like, where is the center now? Who's the center? And who are we in this vast, vast universe? We used to be at the center of it all. 1926 it was the first proof by Edwin Hubble of any of the, of the other galaxies. That was the first proof we had, 1926 complete shift in how we understand our place, at least in the physical world. And then how we understand ourselves, of course, 1900, 100 years ago, Freud published the interpretation of dreams. Western psychology began to question who we are and question whether or not our lives were lived rationally, which we believe so firmly. And then the evolutionary biologists in this century just telling us over and over again how many of our behaviors stem from what we inherit from all the life of the earth, the past, these primal instincts that live in us. The survival instinct that is so primary in everything we think and do. What a revolution in how we understand ourselves. We finally caught up with the East, the great sages of the East in, in understanding our own minds and our own psyches in some way. But it's a whole new, it's a whole new world out there. I did a, a piece. Uh, I was studying for this book I wrote, uh, Buddha's Nature, and I, I began to realize that uh, it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. That how it feels to be a self has changed through time. And there's been some really interesting research on it. If you, uh, you know, if you went up to a medieval peasant or to a nomadic tribesman of uh, a thousand years ago or 500 years ago and said, what do you want to do with your life? They would have no idea what you're talking about. You don't do something with your life. What happens to the tribe happens to you. 
You are part of a group. You don't have this individuality, this sense of selfness. This is a very modern thing. This is uh, Rollo May, the psychologist. Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. In the 70s, a, a uh, psychologist, Julian Jaynes, did a study uh, called The Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, uh, where he, he analyzed early Greek literature of about 1000 BC and said that the early Greeks had no notion at all of free will. They thought all the voices that they heard in their heads were the voices of the gods. Of course, now we would think of that as, as schizophrenia, you know. The gods are talking to me. But of course, now we think that all the voices in our heads are our own, which is also a form of schizophrenia. <laughs> this is a sociologist Charles Taylor. Talk about identity in the modern sense would have been incomprehensible to our ancestors just a few centuries ago. The, the really modern self uh, was born in the Enlightenment era, which is poorly named, according to many Buddhists. <laughs> the Enlightenment era, beginning back, say, in the 1600s, where people came to think uh, that reason was so supreme, it could know and control the world, and the mind became separated from the body, and the individual became separated from the world, soul was taken out of the nature, everything began to be focused on the individual and the individual mind. You know, Descartes, the number one Enlightenment philosopher, said, I think, therefore I am. You began to have the sense of people inventing themselves, living in their own world, living in their own mind. And this is a whole new situation. Um, but that began the radical separation and the birth, really, of the modern self, which, born in Europe, then came to its full flowering here in America, the land of individualized license plates. Alex, uh, the first known use of the term, this is interesting, individualism, is by Alex de Tocqueville in 1835, observing Americans. The first use of the term individualism. Now we live with what uh, Philip Cushman, a psychologist, a famous uh, Bay Area psychologist, calls the bounded masterful self. The real... Uh, sense that the world is, that I'm in here, the world's out there, uh, I am totally autonomous, it's like we're these individual monads going around and we are totally in control of our destiny, there are no outside influences. It's ironic because at this moment in history we know how influenced we are by everything, by our past, by the culture, by the genes, by the, you know, you name it, and yet we have this we, our sense of ourselves is of being totally autonomous beings. 
which is horrendous burden. And it, it makes us feel like we're responsible for everything that happens. You know, we never say God willing. We never put that phrase at the end of the sentence as our ancestors did for so many thousands of years. It's all up to us. So, of course, if we're not rich enough, if we're not beautiful enough, if we're not thin enough, if we're not, it's all our fault because we're in charge. So no wonder we're all so sort of self-critical, you know, because we have this new sense of autonomy and we don't feel ourselves a part of the world. It's a crazy-making, crazy-making situation. I know my own life, you know, uh, my parents, you know, I was told to be special. I was told I was special and you got to go out and make something of yourself, you know. And then, you know, the 60s, it was like, uh, do your own thing. And then the 70s, it was express yourself. And it was, you know, it was just the emphasis is on each individual's uh, uh, entitlement, uh, Destiny, focus. So, the situation that we find ourselves in today, very, very different, very unique. One more, one more thing I'd like to add here is uh, just the technological revolution, of course, and that's part of the big changes that we've seen in the last hundred years, especially. As I said, you know, the air, first airplane flight, 1900, and, you know, the cars. How about uh, antibiotics? How about birth control pills? I mean, that's a revolution unto itself. Uh, television, movies, all of these other realities, all of this, uh, well, you could call it distraction. <laughs> certainly creating a complexity to life that was completely unknown before the last hundred years. So here we are, basically with these brains developed to be hunter-gatherers, in a modern world of such newness and such complexity, No wonder we are drawn to this practice, you know, to try to find some simplicity, to try to gain some centering in this very confusing time, very confusing world. I think it's important, I mean, it, I, it may sound a bit depressing, but it's, I think it's also very important to recognize our condition and the new world that we're living in Partly to forgive ourselves. It's very forgiving when you see yourself in context. It's not your fault. It really isn't. And it's also very good in that it shows us that we're in this together. It raises compassion. We're all struggling. We're all struggling with a very confusing time. And also, it's, it's, uh, it calls us to our heroic self. What can we offer in this time of confusion? 
Also, it's a very critical moment. I mean, I'm sure we all, even if we're not fully aware of the facts, are subconsciously aware that we're living in a very critical moment. There was a hundred, there was a million and a half, I'm sorry, a billion and a half people on the planet in 1900. A billion and a half. In 1950, there were three billion. Now there are six billion. There are too many of us. It's, you can feel it. <laughs> it's obvious. And everybody has their own problems, so the more people there are, the more problems there will be. Somebody should have figured that out. <laughs> but nobody addresses that. You know, I mean, it, what, what, what is going on? We're living through one of the great species die-offs in all, of all biological history. It's a very critical moment in the world. Joanna Macy says, that means we're lucky. We're, we, we have a chance to be bodhisattvas. We're called upon to be heroic. And part of our heroism is to come and to sit down and to collect ourselves and to come to an understanding of ourselves and to forgive ourselves. It's really the beginning of the healing and the change. To try to come to a sense of what really will make us happy. We're going to have to want different things. I know that it may, a lot of people may feel a lot of pain over the recent stock market turmoil. But it's good for the earth. I have to say that. It's good for the earth. There are great gifts, of course, being born in this time. Gifts of comforts and, you know, uh, gifts of this practice. We have access to all the world's cultures and wisdom. So, in some ways, we're very lucky. But we really are uh, challenged also to... to live up to the, to the confusion, to awaken ourselves and to help everyone around us awaken by awakening. Let me close with a couple of quotations. The true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he has attained liberation from the self. Not the Buddha. Albert Einstein. The true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and sense in which he has attained liberation from the self. This is Wu Wei Wu. Why are you unhappy? 
Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.